When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Ko-fi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I have the lovely Charlie with me today. Hey, Charlie. Hello, Alex. How are we doing? Not bad. We, we've taken you a little bit out of your comfort zone today, but nonetheless, you, you were like totally up for it. Tell us why. I was very up for this one because we are talking about a beautiful book which is set in Scotland, which I adore. It's a country I love going to, and so I'm very excited to talk to our guest. We've got Andrew Gregg with us today, and he's written over 20 books of fiction, non-fiction, and poetry. He's been shortlisted for the Walter Scott Prize and has been awarded both the Saltire and Scottish Book Awards. He's hailed as Scotland's Renaissance writer, and he's here with us today to discuss his latest work of historical fiction, Rose Nicholson. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing fine. I've got my coffee. I've got you on the screen and I'm ready to, to rock and roll. Fantastic. Well, we should perhaps begin with a setting of the scene. Rose Nicholson opens in Edinburgh in the winter of 1574. What was the political landscape like in Scotland at this point? Uh, well, it's a shambles. Um, think, <laughs> think Afghanistan, think any post-revolutionary situation that has not yet moved on to the next thing. So they've had this reformation uh, to install the Church of Scotland and uninstall the Catholic Church. And it's left every church and monastery and cathedral, and most public buildings in Scotland, defenestrated, literally. There was not a single piece of unbroken coloured glass, stained glass, from the pre-reformation left in Scotland. That's awful. This day, I mean, they went to every, to every church, every cathedral, every uh, monastery and the Black Friars, the Grey Friars. I had not realised the extent of damage done by basically crowds whipped up by sermons. Gosh. And, yeah, and, and not just glass, but they broke, um, confiscated all the rude screens, which are symbolic, um, and all the carved decorations, carpets, so anything, anything at all fancy, anything that wasn't plain God uh, mm. was destroyed. And 
result is the place is in a mess. All the universities are extremely drafty because the <laughs> windows are full of holes. I got around to putting the plain glass, which I had to replace it. And to me, that image of beautiful stained glass replaced by, or not replaced by, pale, clean, unfiltered glass was a kind of image for the situation. Everyone was feeling the draft. And Edinburgh and St Andrews in particular were broke because there are the money and the institutions of the country were bound up in the church, which had just been delegitimized. Gosh. Uh, so the result was, I said, there was no money because all the money in St Andrews had come from pilgrims to the cathedral. And the cathedral had been wasted and the bones, relics disappeared and there was no pilgrims. The pilgrims was a great source of income in that period. And so the entire town was broke and therefore the university was broke. Very few students, and most of them were extremely pissed off. They felt they were getting a very poor education for far, far <laughs> too high fees. And I read this in a, in a book, I mean, in James Melville's diaries from this period, from the 1570s, complaining exactly this. And you could list it and think, oh, yes, dual landladies, chilly mm -hmm. terrible food. Um, <laughs> a bit like all these poor students now their fees haven't got down yet with covid they... well that's right <laughs> and that's what these guys in Andrew felt because half the stuff was, was cancelled most of the tutors had, had been delegitimized weren't allowed to teach or were drunk or were catholic <laughs> or worse <laughs> and nobody had any money and the numbers were down to dozens as i understand it the university was on the, the point of collapse and that was quite an interesting place to turn up in, uh, like Fowler and his young friends in uh, 1574. One thing that's really strong, I think, in your book is characterization. And um, before we start to talk about your characters, your description of Jamie Sachs or James VI of Scotland, later James I of England, gives yeah. the reader lots of clues as to what kind of king he will grow into. Can you tell us how you've drawn his perceived flaws for the reader? His perceived flaws, well, People did tend to emphasise that when he was a child, um, when he was first presented, age 13 or 14, he shambled, he had problems with his gait, he drooled a bit, um, he stammered. He was not prepossessing physically at all. He had red hair like all the Stuarts, but he just didn't look good. And he had a tendency to, to grope. Um, he groped himself and he groped people, particularly men. He was probably as close to bisexual, acknowledged bisexual monarchists we've had. Mm. Um, he, see, he was not impressive, but he was extremely bright, very lonely. He had no siblings after all, no living grandparents. And parents, his mother was down in England, wasn't coming back. And <laughs> I was literally indefinitely wasn't coming back. I mean, he was a very lonely boy, but bright. And he had a very fine education, Protestant education, from a guy called George Buchanan, who was the foremost Latin scholar and writer in Latin in Europe. He was a big deal. So you got a very clever, very bright, very lonely, socially absolutely hopeless mm -hmm. young man who's passionate about poetry. So I, I could kind of warm to him. <laughs> the worst version of myself <laughs> in, my, in my adolescence. <laughs> Gosh. But he really he, he reaches out to favourites, doesn't he? That's the in, interesting thing about yes. Jamie. 
Yeah, it gets them into bad political trouble because the favourites all have, you know, ambitions and, and powers, particularly the glorious, glamorous Esme Stewart, mm. um, who's part French and was aged 34 when James was about 15 and had married with five children. But he was definitely um, bisexual and wore clothes that no one had ever seen the like of in Presbyterian <laughs> in Scotland. He was elegant, he was clever, he was witty and thoroughly seductive. Um, I, I, quite, I quite fell for Esme Stewart, just the name. <laughs> yes. Actually, I can tell from how you write Esme that you that you've got you you like him. He really does rock up like <laughs> like a rock star. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. He rides in the prow of a boat, dressed mm. in the nines, and it's so so it's just so elegant and so warm with people. You know, the captain of the boat blushes like a girl when <laughs> Esme thanks him for his glorious passage, and the captain wishes him a successful time in Scotland, and he said. I expect that I will do well. <laughs> and he walks off. He refuses a lift in a, in a, in a, on a horse and he just decides to walk up the Leith Walk to Edinburgh. To, he's got no money at all. Mm. He's arrived on, not on a whim, but on a hope and a prayer. And he couldn't, he's going to meet that afternoon, um, James VI. And they're going to be inseparable for the next three years. Gosh. Until they're forced to separate. Yes. Well, this is this is the fun of favourites, isn't it? They sort of depose each other and get above their station. And yes, and then they invite, invite jealousy. Mm. There was an awful lot of infighting and jealousy in James's court. See, the problem with Scotland at this point, you say 1574, it has a series of regents who rule in the name of the king, who's a child and kept in Stirling Castle either in, under protection or as a prisoner, whatever way you look at it. Um, and we had four regents in 15 years. First one was shot in the mythical through a, through a line of washing. Um, <laughs> second one was shot in a close range in a scuffle in Stirling. The third one died horribly after going to a banquet of the fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> and Morton, who ruled longest, he was about seven, eight years. So we're talking about political, massive instability with uh, a boy who's going to be king if he's allowed to be, but his mother is still alive and hoping to come back with a French or Spanish army to take back the country. And a lot of people in Scotland would like to see that happen. So what I had in the back of my mind was Brexit with knives. <laughs> that is the tagline for the front cover, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it got stuck in my head, but that's the situation. We think we've got problems. Gosh. This is a country divided right down the middle. I mean, Scottish history is just you know, this time is just a series of brutal murders of people in power, one after the other. Jamie's own father, Lord Darnley, is is one of my favourites. You know, his his yeah. castles found exploded and he's found outside strangled. It's just, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah that was pretty melodramatic. Yes, he was found unconscious and was probably then strangled. But <laughs> sure. It depends who, who you listen to. And who Someone went to finish off the job. My goodness. But the but, story is, yeah, a number of people are getting bumped off. The, the hygienes. If yeah. you were important, you, um, you got executed. If you're a lower minion, you got hung, hanged. Being hanged was regarded as an insult if you were classy. <laughs> yeah, at least do me the honour of cutting my head off. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> my goodness yeah any any fans of, of fiction like game of thrones you know just read scottish <laughs> history it's it's better <laughs> it's more bloody more. the red wedding in game of thrones uh season three is scottish history isn't it yeah. right yes yeah, so i i can buy that <laughs> these characters are so big and so vital they seem to live incredibly vital at least in our imagination because a lot of them are short-lived um and it just kind of makes them all the more intriguing. And there's, there's lots of, of love and sex. And I mean, James sixth father had how many legitimate children? He died at 25. And he left it from some of seven, eight, nine. It's hard to say. Um, a shortage of legitimate children, that was part of the problem. Gosh. I mean, yeah, that, that's a big issue for the Stuart monarchy going forward um, for, for right. very, many I'm, generations. There's a lot of Stuarts and they're all, they're all closely related and a lot of them want, want the throne. Mm. And most of the people who want the throne are James are six cousins and half cousins and quarter cousins and uncles in one case, and grandfather in another. And his mother, of course, wants the throne back. Yes. Yeah. I mean, no wonder the guy's kind of struggling. I really felt for him. Um, I, I came to think actually he was, as they say, the wisest fool in Christendom. He was smart, he was subtle, and he above all survived. Reigned 57 years, something like that. I mean, that's impressive in itself, just to have got to the, the age where you can die in your own bed, um, <laughs> regardless of who helps you die there. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I have natural causes, I believe. Uh, there's a, there was a lot of people who suggested that perhaps Buckingham was involved, but I think that's mainly because they hated Buckingham. Yes, I <laughs> anyway, I'm going off on a tangent because I, I love these people. But your your story, Rose Nicholson, isn't directly about any of these big figures. Tell us about yeah. your protagonist, William Fowler. Who's he? Okay, well, I tend to relate naturally to people that you know more of my kind of status. William Fowler is a real person. Um, and he's born 1560, which is the year of the Scottish Reformation, which is very handy. Um, he's a son of a trader, a burgess of Edinburgh, furniture maker, and his mother's very interesting. His mother's called Janet Fockhart, mm-hmm. and she's a well-known wardwife, which is a wonderful word for a moneylender. Watch now, she carries a ward. Well, that's a probably kind of personal activity, and she lent money against security. She was a formidable businesswoman and a formidable character. I, I, I was very, I was a bit frightened of her, and she, she was a bit frightened. Of she, and she's a, she's a, she remains Catholic and gets off with it because she's lending money to the church and the court and the nobility and the town council and everybody. So she's allowed. Some people did can't carry on being Catholic. His father gets shot and during the Lang siege, um, which is an endless. Castles under siege for about three years. So he's already an orphan, he's about 12, William Fowler. And he becomes a student at St Andrews. This is, I know this, 74 to 78. And does quite well and forms some friendships that are going to last the rest of his life. One with a guy called uh, Nicholson, Thomas Tom Nicholson, who's a poor scholar. It doesn't mean he's a lousy student, it means he's got no money. <laughs> uh, and he's a, he comes from a fishing family, and the fishermen were always poor at St Andrews. The harbour was useless, basically. Handily, he had, has a sister. I'll get to that in a moment. 
Uh, and the other one is Walter, young Walter Scott, or Frank Simon Buclus, who grandly calls himself aged 15. And Scott Buclus is uh, a weaver, uh, not an outlaw, but a, a rustler by trade. And to survive, he has to kill people because he's supposedly killed about 20 people by the age of 20 individually. Mm. And there's no doubt that a number of attempts to kill him were launched. So that's, that's William Fowler. He's, he's got hopes of becoming a poet. He's, like, he's a natural businessman um, through his mother. Um, doesn't want to be a businessman, but that's actually what he's good at. Mm. He's basically a pen for hire with mm. ambitions beyond his station, and he falls inevitably in love with Rose Nicholson, um, mm. his friend Tom Nicholson's sister. She's about the only girl he can ever possibly meet in St. Andrews. <laughs> because there's no, there's no female students, of course. Uh, and they're not, by and large, in the shops. In some ways, it's uh, you've got to imagine it's like being life under the Taliban. Mm-hmm. The places where women can appear are very, very restricted. And that's for a chance to actually get off with one. You can't go to a dance meet a girl because dancing <laughs> is not allowed <laughs> under the new dispensation of the Presbyterian Kirk. You can't, you know, dancing is not allowed, music's not approved, or there's no plays, uh, there's no movies. So it was very helpful. It's like COVID, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very helpful with this, this lad, his friend had a sister, Rose. And I gradually realised that no, she's educated because the Church of Scotland, God bless them, this is one of the great things about them, they're pretty do and joyless bunch of them, but they'd be totally in. Literacy. All parishes have to have a church, a school for boys and girls, because girls also had souls, apparently. And that's why girls had to be able to read as well, not to read the Gospels. And they had to be able to read the Gospels so as to make up their own minds about the truths in them. Because you couldn't take gospel truth from the priests, because there were no priests, or the Pope, or the king. That's really important. The king was not head of the Church of Scotland. The king was just a man. He might be, he might be king in the secular world, but in the religious world, um, he was just all equal in the sight of God. So Rose Nicholson can read in Latin, because most of his education was in reading and writing Latin. And this is basic and important stuff, because it means that she could read um, what the humanists of the time were reading, which was Latin and Greek texts. Greek text usually translated into Latin by this time. And I gradually realized that she was not only as bright as her brother, she was actually even brighter. And her brother was very, very bright. And that her capacity for original thought was going to become sooner or later a danger. And I thought, now I've got a plot. But a love story, um, three young men with ambitions, and a woman who's inevitably going to become in In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Much of, when you started writing the plot, much of the dialogue, you've done it in Scots with a handy dictionary of terms in the back yeah. for those who aren't fluent. Uh, <laughs> How important was it for you to write in the native tongue? It seemed absurd to write it entirely in standard English, I guess. But I didn't want it to be, you know, too colloquial. So there's no Americanisms, for instance, that would be ridiculous. So what I wanted to write it in was, and if I wrote it in pure Scots, I couldn't read it. You couldn't. <laughs> it wouldn't be spelled the same. I mean, it would be incomprehensible to anyone other than a serious historian scholar. So like my last book, Fair Helen, which was set in the same period, this was about the border rivers, I evolved a way of writing quite a plain English. Imagine like porridge with little flakes of salt scattered on it, and mm. a bit of honey. And that's the, the sprinkling of Scots and occasionally French and Latin words, because these people, again, would have naturally used French and Latin a lot. You didn't want to have too much of that, because that would make it hard. So I, I drew on the Scots of my father, who's from the northeast of Scotland, and that's called Doric Scots and Lallans or Lowland Scots, which is what I had been surrounded by most of my life. I love the words. I love the word drich. You need a word like drich if you live in Scotland, <laughs> um, which is a state of mind as well as a state of weather. Um, it words like stromash, words like glaket, as for foolish. And I try to make them all pretty clear by context what they must mean. But yeah. if you're unsure, you know, there is the uh, glossary at the end. It's, it's, a, it's a translation. The whole thing's a translation of how somebody might have written and thought, because it's a memoir, thought and felt in the 16th century. Yes, it's, I mean, as as an English person reading from, from south of the border, it's so wonderful because when you are reading the Scots, you, you're hearing the accents, you can hear them as you're reading and this this might may or may not make you laugh, but when I was reading Rose Nicholson, she was Claire Grogan. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I had her exact intonations and, and her voice yeah. in my head. Well, she, she can voice it anytime she wants. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't she be wonderful? Oh mm-hmm. my goodness! My husband's had a crush on her since the eighties. So, um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I see that I probably will have to acknowledge that. <laughs> <laughs> we love we love her in this house, but but yes, the and the di- the dictionary came in very very handy, and I, I learned a lot of new words. Um, I want to jump back a little bit from from Rose herself and talk about Will again. 
did having a character like Will, who's outside of the big characters, did that help you to get into the complex political stuff more than perhaps writing a book about Jamie Sachs would have? Okay, well, yes, I, I had no desire to write a novel of, of Jamie Sachs or any of the key players. Mm. My natural point of view is at the fringes, not quite the outside, but at the fringes looking in. As an early scene where Will is about to leave the family home to go to university, he stands hesitating at the top of the high street, half in and half out of the door. And I think his whole life of the real person was like that. He managed to make an existence at the edge of the court, but he was never of the court. He never became gentry. He became a burgess eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, I relate to people who are at the edge of things, partly because they can watch and they can see. And I'm fascinated by how small Edinburgh and St Andrews were at the time. Edinburgh this time is a population of about 12,000 people. Gosh. That's not many. Now, as they would know all of each other, I sight. You would see Knox over and over again. You see Lord this, Duke that, Regent this. You would see him, and they'd all be known and gossiped and talked about and observed. So I found it easy to, to be Will standing beside his father when he's selling a writing case to John Knox. These people see history, historical figures going by them all the time, and for the most part, it doesn't touch them. But I'm very interested in how, in some of our lives, Probably in most, at some point or other, history kind of brushes up really close to us. And we're really close. We each arrested or killed or married or something. Things happen very closely, particularly in a, in a country, in a city that's as small as Edinburgh is then. It's almost inevitable that you would be at the edge of things. So follow through a small writing group, which Jamie Sachs is a member of, um, is at the edge of political assassination. And, and a couple of kidnappings without pushing the likelihood, without making him a superhero or anything. Because he was a spy. He reported on the Scottish government to the English government and on the English government uh, to the Scottish government. And he was, paid for, he was paid to do this. And this was regarded as perfectly normal thing to do. He sold information and he sold his good handwriting. So he wrote um, documents, official documents, and that's the kind of role of intellectuals of the time. You were asked to write pamphlets mm. for other people and sometimes for themselves. So I, I kind of related to this person as a kind of writer for hire, mm. kind of in it and wants to do better, but will always slightly disappoint himself. He's finally bought off with a pension um, of uh, 2,000 acres in a bog in Ireland. He <laughs> feels it's insulting, he never goes there. <laughs> no, it's never going to be a story of huge success. Yeah, um, it's a story of a of a, a life. I hope that people can relate to mm-hmm. ambitions and hopes and yearnings, happy accidents and disappointment. I never forget. They asked. I remember someone asked James Cameron. They said, "Why did you invent two fictional characters in Titanic when you then went and write meticulously found lookalikes for all the real people and had all the real amazing stories?" And he said. Mm-hmm. Why would I not? If I had two fictional people, I could send them anywhere. They could do mm-hmm. anything. They could see anything. Yeah. It gave me total freedom to explore the story without having to stick to an actual narrative of events left by real people. And when you think about it like that, it's like, well, yeah, why would I not? Yeah, I try to, it's, it's an interesting quandary to be in. I mean, I try to 
not do any damage to what history I have and know. Somebody, very few people might notice that John Knox has died, dies a couple of years from when he actually did. That, that had to be the case for various reasons. Mm. But I like to play the game inside what we know. And there's loads of room to invent. And often things you find out about people give you ideas for and you'd never have had otherwise. You couldn't have invented. I mean, like the mother of the of Scott of the Clue, um, Janet, uh, not Janet, Margaret Douglas, she's really, really amazing and scary. She has loads of children by various husbands. And finally, Pauline Bothwell, who when he's not um, rampaging around the country, still has another five, six children with her. Well, she had about five or six by her first husband, and she lives to 91. <laughs> and she is just something else. And, and, and Janet Fockhart, again, is a, is the doubtable woman with the good sense to remain a widow. There's the only way you can carry on control of your finances and your legal status is having been married, and then your husband dies or is killed, and then you remain a widow. Um, so she gets very close to Edmund Stewart, <laughs> inevitably. Um, but I, I just found her, these two women to be such interesting people and uh, young Fowler's rather in awe of them. <laughs> I mean, the the female characters in this book are, are incredibly strong. Um, I'm thinking particularly about the mother of another character who who features quite prominently. Uh, let's let's talk about Walter Scott. He's bound very tightly with Will's mm. story. Yeah, well, well, I'd fallen for um, Walter Scott of Branksome and Reclue when I was writing uh, Fair Helen, uh, which is the historical novel I wrote before this one, because he was such a splendid villain. He just took over them. He was really scary, partly because he was funny and witty and calculating and imaginative and quite flirtatious, but extremely violent. Uh, that kind of calculated violence as opposed to just a loose and loose cannons <laughs> like bottles. And that's what was really scary about him, about Scott Rebuckley. And so when I got a chance to meet his mother, imaginatively, when uh, he goes, Will Fowler goes for the first time, and she was everything I expected. She was, do you know he describes her as? She was tall, she was about six foot. So some, some women were, Mary Queen of Scots was 5'11". Um, and she was the kind of woman he'd never seen before. He was fascinated and terrified. And she's quite seductive. She's also very physically close with her son, um, who she guides, whose political life she guides. She's eventually in fact banned from being within a mile of Edinburgh and James, the person of James and his court is eventually cross pardon, but she was a player, mm. a significant player, not just as his mother, but through marriage, she was related to all kinds of important people, and she had plans. And so it was great to hang out with her, and she also helpfully owns a vineyard in Padua, um, mm. and teaches him how to taste and enjoy Italian wine, which is Because I, I, what I had intended to write was a novel called Padua. Right. This is what I was commissioned to write. And uh -huh. I ended up, what I ended up with was Rose Nicholson. Huh. Padua came from discovery uh, that a young Walter Scott, a bison with the clue, William Fowler, and a person called Thomas Nicholson, Ian Lackey, 
brackets PhD brackets had matriculated at Padua University in 1591. And I thought, huh? What? Why? What are they doing there? And I told this to my editor, he was fascinated as well. And it was the time of Galileo was lecturing in algebra at the time, Philip Sidney, poet and English poet. A lot of really innocent people were in Padua at this time. Yeah. Young Scotsman. And my editor said, that sounds really good. Here's the check. And I thought, I have to find out how these people, two guys, met. And that was the opening chapter, which grew into the entire volume. And they never get to Padua. <laughs> that'll be another book. But, um, I, I'd like to write the third book of this trilogy of Per Helen, Rose Nicholson, and one that's called Padua. So we never get to Padua in this, but um, she is connected to Lady Margaret Douglas, has a vineyard and has, has a kind of endowed monastery, nunnery rather, in Padua, which will come in useful. <laughs> yeah, you've got your way out there. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like ending a book with a kind of resolution, but also with a future that people are going to move on into. Brilliant. And um, you've already mentioned this in the course of the discussion, and that's the university at St Andrews. Mm. University is almost a character in itself within your story. Uh, how involved were the academics in the political wrangling of the Scottish Court and Parliament? Oh, well, very much. Um, Partly because we educated most of them. Yeah. Universities were fighting as always for their independence. And they were fighting from their independence from the Kirk, who wanted mm. to control the universities by appointing only established Protestants. And also with the court. And of course, the king wanted to be in charge of universities. And the town council felt that well, they owned the buildings, you know, so truly they should have control. So the, in the nature of a university is that they're perpetually wrangling with the supremacy and control with all the other civic powers. And in this case, in this Scotland, in the, with the religious power. And I, I found that so interesting that it's inevitable that nearly all tutors were Catholic or had been Catholic. And they, because they couldn't suddenly invent new tutors who were Protestants, you couldn't educate them in time. That was just had to be allowed to pass by. And so you had important people like George Buchanan, who had become Protestants, lecturing and teaching. And I, the idea of a university that's flat broke, desperate, and fighting for its existence, let alone its, its, its independence, it just, just fascinated me. Yeah, I, mean, I should say I was born and brought up in Anstruther, uh, near St Andrews. So it was, our, mm -hmm. it was our big town. We went over the hill to go shopping in St Andrews. <laughs> and my earliest impressions were this huge ruined cathedral. To me, that's... And then there's the ruined, and now rebuilt, like the Bishop's Palace. And then these ruined bits of ports and monasteries. And even in this in the 1960s, you could see the 16th century, visibly there, the whole setup and layout of St Andrews was exactly the same one that my people are in. And that helped so much. I was going back to St Andrews, walking down those streets, seeing the bits where the martyrs were burned, the scotch marks and the cobbles. Yeah. I mean, it really helped me believe. Because I think writing historical novels is essentially living in a waking dream. 
I don't feel I invent it. I kind of read and think and then go there and get get wet, get rained on, <laughs> out of the sea, get bitten by midges, and, and walk on the streets until I believe it, until I can slip back 500 years. And because if I believe it, and I feel I've seen these things in my mind's eye, and also experienced them on my body, then there's a chance that the reader can believe it as well, be there. Which I think is what you want to be as a reader. When I read books, I want to be there. And that's why I've actually, that's, that's my method, is to research and then go there. Gosh, and hang yeah. out in the moonlight and in the rain, <laughs> sunlight. And, and think, things invent themselves then. Excellent. I hope I've given some of what, obviously okay. there's so many things I, that I could say because I still live in this book. I'll come to do exiting it. Nor can do spill stuff out and hope it makes sense, and that people will read the book. That, that's the that's the way to do it. Well, I hope that people will pick up Rose Nicholson, especially if they love Scotland, because it is like walking these streets, and I can totally, I can totally feel that you that you have experienced these places and walked through them. Um, and as, yeah. as someone who, who writes 17th century London, I'm incredibly jealous that you have so much left that you can actually yes. walk around and experience. There's some 17th century London, but um, not a huge amount, I guess, because it's been developed in a way that exactly. Edinburgh and St Andrews, to some extent, have not been totally redeveloped. And they never got destroyed in fires or wars. It's it's an incredible place. So yes, if you are if you are missing traveling north of the border, people, please pick up a copy of Rose Nicholson by Andrew Gregg because it is absolutely stunning and a really just a really good fun read. Andrew, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Thank you. Very enjoyable. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book. The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack. Or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. And here's to your next great book. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.